0: Hello and welcome to the How to Talk to Girls Podcast. This is your host, Trip, from Tripadvice.com. And this episode is sponsored by Spartagen XT. Spartagen XT is your all-natural supplement to help you boost your sex drive and boost your libido, help you become a rock star in the bedroom. So if you have any trouble with keeping an erection, with getting an erection, with testosterone, or at the minimum, just getting your confidence back in the bedroom with the girl of your dreams. Then I want you to check out SpartanLibido.com for more information to learn about this all-natural supplement filled with herbs and filled with vitamins to help you with bedroom uh, instability. So go check that out and uh, and get on it today. SpartanLibido.com. Check out more information. Now today's episode. We have a unique guest, someone who uh, who has a lot of just amazing information to share with you about an industry that you might know very well, but actually don't know too much about the porn industry. I interviewed Dr. Chantel Tibbles, who wrote a book that came out in uh, July of last year, last year being 2015, and it's called Exposure. And this book is really uh, just a kind of woman's peek into the porn industry. Uh, she's a sociologist. She's a, and she's a doctor uh, in sociology, and so she's exploring the world of porn, aka adult entertainment, and kind of sharing her insights to uh, what she found that was interesting about it and what this industry is really all about, and and just has a lot of great stories, some which she shares with us today on the interview. So More on that in just a second. Don't forget that if you have a question for me to answer on the podcast, all you got to do is call in 323-432-0025 and I will answer your question here on the podcast. But today we're doing something different. Like I said, we're doing an interview with Dr. Chantelle Tibbles and uh, she Really, she gives some great information in terms of in terms of some of the the underlying things that are happening in the industry that I thought that you'd find very interesting and almost kind of in a way humanizing this uh, this industry that people don't really know much about. Of course, you, know, you go on the internet, you probably find some porn, you whack off to it, and that's that. But we go a little bit deeper here, no pun intended. And talk about kind of the ins and outs, no pun intended, of this industry. And she is extremely smart and has a lot of great stuff to say. And if you want to learn more about the industry and kind of get a, a viewpoint from a sociologist on the porn industry, check out her book *Exposure*. You can get it on Amazon. You can go to Barnes and Nobles and get it and uh, and and read it and learn more about it. So, uh, if you have any more interest in learning about Dr. Chantelle, you can go to her website, which is chanteltibbles.com. And uh, I'm not going to spell that out here. It'd be so much easier for you to just go check it out in the show notes where you can just click on it and learn more about her, learn more about her book, and really uh, go deeper. So without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Chantelle right now. Hey, Chantelle, how's it going?
1: Great. How are you?
0: I am fantastic. It is really just. A pleasure to have you here on the podcast, and and I, I feel like I I have so many questions, but I want to just kind of get into to you first, and and how you got into everything you got into, and I think that what's really cool about you is that it's not just about what you know, but it's also about the story of how you know everything you know and kind of <laughs> what got you into this because I feel like you're a very rare specimen. Uh, you're a woman who is interested and has taught about the porn industry. You've dove into it. Um, it seems like in some ways, correct me if I'm wrong, you kind of support it in, in many ways.
1: Um, I mean, support it in the sense that I, as a sociologist, am totally of the mind Mm. that the community and the media have every right to, you know, have a voice and exist like any other type of media. I 100% support it um, in the sense that as a researcher and an inquisitive person who's super nosy, (laughs) myself. Um, that the adult industry community is fascinating, worth study, worth respect, and can actually teach us a lot about our world and how we interact because it's a part of our world. I also 100% support that. Um. Do I think that porn is 100% perfect and the greatest thing in the world? I do not. Um, but I don't think anything is 100% perfect and the greatest thing in the world. So, you know, I, I, yes, I would definitely say that I support, you know, the existence of adult entertainment, absolutely. But not in the sense that I am some sort of like pro-porn advocate, whatever that means.
0: Right. No, absolutely. What do you think fascinates you the most about the porn industry? I guess maybe we can go with with that question into how you you know ended up writing this book called exposure all about it and you know what led you to even write that book. i guess you're you're fascinated in some way to be able to to go off and write a book like this so tell us about that
1: well i i think sadly what is still the most interesting thing about porn and about the adult entertainment production community as this collective whole. And it's so diverse. I mean, it's not, there's no way that you could just come up with a one line description for it. I mean, porn, as we think of it includes everything from, you know, novelty to content, to web-based content, to all the PR people and marketing. I mean, it's, it's vast, but for whatever reason, I think the thing that's still the most compelling and surprising to me is how still in 2016 misunderstood and misrepresented the industry is. And all of that speaks to our discomfort with sex. We don't know how many people work in the porn industry. We don't know how much money it makes. We don't really even have, like, I couldn't point you to a reference that is a rigorous capture of what is included in the industry because that sort of research doesn't exist. And the reason why it doesn't exist is because these large institutional entities, be they universities, be they research foundations, media, whatever, still is afraid to touch it. And and that happens. And you juxtapose that with the fact that porn is widely consumed. You know, all humans, regardless of how their sexuality manifest, have some sort of sexuality. Asexuality is a sexuality, like the word asexual, not a one individual sexuality. Right. So we are compelled by sex and porn is sex media in various ways. So the fact that we have this entity that almost on a a base core level, every human is at least sort of interested in, not interested meaning like, I like porn, but connects with because of the sexual expression piece. And yet we can't even look at it or take it seriously or understand the demographics of it. That still is the thing that's most surprising. Like, I can't believe that that's still the case now. I mean, I've been doing this for over a decade, and it's still the case that interests me it keeps me going it keeps me interested and it, it's shocking still to this day that that's the way it is
0: so <laughs> are you still doing research in the industry are you still connected to it or you know the book that you wrote is that pretty much it and you moved on to other things where are you right now
1: well i am i i do my own like sort of private research consulting. And I have a whole sort of back end business that I run, but also um, sort of on the front facing end, I've moved away from the conventional like research model, academia, university life, and now do public scholarship. And the way that I really manifest my public scholarship in and with and about adult entertainment is through writing for mainstream publications. So I write for different places. Uh, I wrote for Men's Health for a while. I write for Playboy. Um, I currently have a column developing on Mike. And essentially what I do in those pieces is write these sort of small chunk stories about adult entertainment. So I did this one long-form piece with this woman who makes porn gifts. And I know you're supposed to say GIFs, but I cannot deprogram my brain to say gifts. So they're still gifts to me. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: okay, good. When you said gifts, I was like, wait, porn gifts? I thought you meant like GI No, and I
1: had a conversation. I was so excited about this article when I wrote it, and I was telling a girlfriend of mine, oh my gosh, this girl who makes porn gifts. And she's like, G-I-F-T-S, what kind of, what are you talking, I'm like, no, gif, <laughs> so, but I mean, like, but something like that, where, you know, I interviewed this woman, um, and what her job is, basically, is to create, you know, those little snackable things that we all love to watch, you know, what's the art behind it, what's she doing, and she's really crafted a career that came from her own interest in watching these little erotic moments, so she was a, that's how she consumed her porn, and then she started taking classes and learned how to make them herself. And then she got really good at it. And then she got a big social media following. And then she's now hired up by all of these porn producers to create this content and put it out there. And wow. so it's, she's got a really specific eye. And it's fascinating. And the idea that there's a woman out there who's a member of the adult industry community, she's Canadian, Um, So she's not from the US, obviously, but you know, like the adult community is global. And just something like that, you know, that's, that's where my work with adult entertainment has taken me today is showing, showcasing, telling these stories that people would never get to hear otherwise um, and really give a, a good solid take on these different dimensions of the business. Another one that I did recently that I was really excited about was um, about this guy who is a quote unquote professional villain. That's how he describes his job. Okay. And he's one of the go-to people in adult content production who basically is the, the tie up you know, abduction scene kind of guy. And you watch this content and he's always this lurker outside of a window with like a knife and this really kind of scary, edgy content that people really like watching. And then you have the guy whose job is to perform this stuff that if it were happening in real life, people would really freak out about. And it was such an interesting profile piece to get to talk to this guy and get to know him a little bit. And, you know, he's just an average Joe, he likens himself to a stunt, you know, a stunt guy, like a stunt performer, like a race car driver or something, where, you know, he's doing stuff that you'd never do in real life. And he's a trained professional. And that also is just another example of something that you wouldn't necessarily get to hear about. Um, And there certainly isn't any research or studies being done on this type of thing. So, you know, I spent many, many, many years, um, publishing academically, doing research in that conventional way. And in addition to really um, running up against a lot of institutional blockades, you know, people in universities not wanting to fund research, people getting really freaked out by this kind of research, et cetera. Wow. Um, nobody reads that sort of stuff. You know, you never, there's not a lot of eyes on that content. And the longer I stayed involved with this community and realized that, You know, there's not a lot of understanding about it. Like I said, I shifted my focus and moved my work to a more public, plain language, accessible platform, meaning like mainstream media.
0: Right. And what do you think one of the biggest misunderstandings of the industry is to, you know, I guess an everyday an everyday person like me or someone who's listening to the podcast like what's something that maybe people aren't aware that's that's kind of interesting
1: um i'd say two things the the first one is the idea about the like quote unquote fakeness of porn um you know porn is a production like anything else so it's contrived obviously like every kind of media is contrived the language is contrived the camera angles lights on, lights off, you know, we're meeting here at this day to shoot the scene type of deal. All of that is contrived. But at the same time, there's also the reality that, you know, people are, are actually having some sort of sexual experience. So there is that less contrived piece that's involved. And there is like this human connection. And even if that connection is like, okay, I just have to work today, whatever, the idea that that porn is either a literal reflection of what sex should be or that it's totally fake, both of those poles, I think, are common. We think about those frequently, but those are both off mark. And it really is this sort of middle ground where you're talking about a production, like regardless of what the content is, it can be like a big parody of, you know, uh superheroes or something like that. Or it can be, you know, a little indie shot thing with like your iPhone or something and all of that media is still staged and all of that media is also still human and still involves actual sex so I guess like a like a misconception would be that it's one of those poles or the other When really like I said it's this kind of middle ground um but you never hear that really talked about too too much and and it really is the case I think the other thing that's super surprising or, you know, misconception is that people who are in porn are making a lot of money. (laughs) The adult industry is not the, like, millionaire groundswell that it once was Um, and and people who work. That that it once
0: was. That's interesting. So at one point you're saying it was, but what's what's changed?
1: Well, the adult industry had a – so they had a big heyday in, like, the late 70s, early 80s, you know, where, oh, porn was booming kind of thing. And then it sort of dipped down. And then late 90s to, I always get stuck on 2005, 2006. That's when, in my view, you started to see there was a, a down that was happening in the industry. But from the late 90s, we'll call it 98 to 2006. And these are just ish, you know, dates. They're sure. not like hard and fast. Yeah. You don't understand. I have to clarify that they're not hard and fast because then all of a sudden it'll be like these poles that were defined by Dr. Tibbles. <laughs> um, but you started to see like in those times in that like late 90s, early 2000s, porn was booming. And it was like a, a perfect storm, if you will. People were getting – you know, people were becoming involved enough in the internet. You could sell enough stuff on the internet. It was still novel to go and, and see nakedness on the internet. Like it was just this, this perfect storm of production and culture and technology happening. And yay, right? It was, it was great. And, you know, performers were making a lot of money. Studios were making a lot of money. You could go, you know, the, the industry was kind of a wide open space. Um, I know you said you recently did an interview with Joanna Angel, and I remember having a conversation with Joanna once, and she, cause Joanna's been in the adult industry since the early 2000s, and I remember she said something that always has, has stuck with me, and it was such a funny vision. She said, you could throw porn at a wall and it would make money. Like, you know, you could just throw something up there and it would stick and make money. And that's true, you know, and that's kind of the way it was. But in the mid aughts, so 2005, 2006, you started to see shift in the culture. People were no you know, people got kind of over it a little bit, but then tube sites started happening. And whereas people would pay, they stopped paying. And piracy, and, you know, there's there's other issues as well, you know, labor issues and cultural shifts and all of these things. But piracy, so watching free pirated content, it's not free, it's stolen pirated content on you know like a big tube site, something like Pornhub or tube. Those are sites that are populated with content that's copyright infringing, meaning it's not being used with permission. And they have all these different ad revenue streams and stuff like that, which is how those sites make money. But they basically take the content from the content producer owner and put it up there. So then, when we go and watch it for free, the people who actually made the content, you know, so they should be getting compensated. They they are not. So what we've seen is this massive like deep dip dive and the adult industry has shrunk so dramatically in the last 10 years. And with that, you know, you see people being paid less, people making less money, less work, less jobs, all of those things. So whereas before, you know, you could go in and and make a really good living, whatever, that's not the case um, anymore at all. The, The work is Far more difficult to get. It's far, far more infrequent, and that is directly tied to internet piracy.
0: So, how are those bigger sites that are getting ripped off? I mean, I should let me rephrase the question. How are these tube sites getting away with it? I mean, how come are they getting sued like constantly, or what's what's happening with that?
1: People used to do um, because there's there's this interesting loophole in the law. Tube sites are basically um, considered sort of like a platform for uploads, and you know there's a lot of people out there who are far more professional at understanding copyright and piracy, etc. There's a really great resource if anybody who's listening wants to understand um, more in depth nitty gritty issues about piracy. Um, there's a man named Nate Glass um, who does work in this area and he owns a company called take down piracy and he's the expert on this and but essentially a tube site is sort of like a almost like a shelf if you can imagine a shelf on the internet and people this is the loophole people uploaders torrent sites all these different things will go and take content and put it on these you know proverbial shelves and say, here it is. Here's this piece. Here's this piece. Here's this piece. The tube site then kind of gets out of culpability by saying, I don't know what they uploaded. They just put it up there. Sorry, whatever. And so then it's up to the copyright owner to find the content and say, Hey, you're not allowed to have that. That's mine. You have to take it down. And it's a whole legal process that has to happen um, where you issue a DMCA notice, a Digital Millennium Copyright Act notice, to have that content specifically taken down. And until you actually, until the copyright owner actually goes and says, "Hey, take that down," the the shelf metaphor is just that. Oh, you can just sit there because somebody else put it on their shelf. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And they probably take their very, very like precious so time, how- <laughs> yeah, to to do that to just let things kind of
1: stay do it, up there. Else some are, um, from my understanding, some tube sites are like, okay, fine. Um, and then other ones will fight tooth and nail and, you know, to keep content up there. The other thing about it that's interesting, though, is um, how that then backfeeds into the culture. So you will see, you know, op eds from, I don't know, some kind of Cultural website, a feminist website, a film critique website, you know, any kind of thing or publication talking about how horrible porn is. Like the content is so shitty. It's all the same. Um, you know, it depicts sex in this way. You never see any of this, that, or the other. And those insights are all culled from tube site porn, which means whoever is framing those thoughts went to a tube site, watched, stolen, pirated content, and then used that as some sort of meter reflecting the adult business. But when, in reality, what you're looking at when you look at a tube site is a very, very narrow picture of adult content. It's adult content that has been pirated, that that, those pieces haven't been taken down yet. And a lot of times you get what um, Nate actually refers to as quote unquote orphaned content meaning content that the copyright owner is no longer around for various reasons, meaning the company has closed, the catalog has been bought and sold several times, um, things like that, where it's unclear who actually would need to go and say, hey, take that down. And that's also distressing because you will find on tube sites a lot of illegal content because once content crosses that illegal mark, it's no longer co- – no. It's now no longer copyright protected, meaning that there isn't an owner that can say, hey, take that down. So you get a lot of like sketchy spaces on tube sites where there's content that really is not produced by the adult industry or, you know, has since developed in some way. Maybe it comes from overseas or whatever, where laws are different. And you see all of this stuff. So when people look at tube sites, they're getting like, sort of the grossest version of adult.
0: Yeah. They're getting like just, a, like a different perspective. Yeah. Like a false perspective really, almost.
1: This is really unfortunate. So if people, you know, like people who are listening, if you want to get maybe a clearer, um, and a more like consensual picture of what adult content is and can be, in my view, it's really good to go to a legit adult retail website. So something like, adult dvd empire which is now adult empire it's just it's a retail sales site so obviously you know you can go and browse their catalog it's a really like pretty crystal-y website but you know you're gonna have to pay for the content but what you're seeing there is media that has been placed there by people who want it placed there so the picture that you see of adult is far more complex and far more accurate than if you're just going and looking through these dregs of stuff that people haven't been able to have taken down yet,
0: right, right. The the, the cleaner stuff, so to speak.
1: It not necessarily clean because clean is pretty subjective. You're gonna get you're gonna get super hardcore everywhere you go, or you'll get romance. You know, like you're you're gonna have all of that. The sex depiction is not necessarily um, what I'm talking about. It's the broader picture of what currently is happening in porn you're going to see that from you know like that retail website type of thing you're going to see a clearer picture there versus the tube site where you're getting a very skewed selection of material
0: and do you think that a lot of this material is focused more toward the consumption of men or is there a lot of stuff equally produced and created for women as well what have you found with with that
1: Well, I mean, I think with anything, it goes in trend with any kind of media production. So I was in college in the late 90s. And I remember there was a big bump for whatever reason for a period of years um, in like, slasher horror like all those scream movies came out and there was i know what you did last summer and all of those like there was a, those were a big thing in the 90s and they're not really a big thing anymore people kind of lost interest in that or whatever i cite that example only to say with porn you still you see these ebbs and flows as well so around about you know when porn was super heyday, gonzo form and like really kind of like acrobatic I guess for lack of a better way or like extreme and when I say extreme I don't mean like in an objective way I mean like stretching one's body to maximum proportions or whatever like that kind of extreme like like doing physically challenging acts that kind of content was really really popular and then people sort of were over it and then now in the past couple of years You know, there was this big push towards, quote unquote, romance porn, which was really interesting. And then when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, you started to see this big bump in BDSM content. Now, all of this content always exists. You can still find Gonzo form content. Romance porn has always existed existed um, BDSM content has been produced probably it's probably one of the earliest and oldest types of depictions is to show you know something BDSme but consumers go in trend so you'll see these these bumps in sales bumps in consumption things like that um, there's not really it's not even there's not really there is no data that actually describes the gender of porn consumers, but it is commonly understood that porn is mostly watched by men as a consequence, presumably, supposedly shot to please a male viewer. But it's not as simple as that. A lot of men who are watching porn are watching porn in conjunction with a woman partner, and a lot of porn is also watched by women. Flip that to the other side. And there have been women involved in adult content production since like the dawn of porn. Women who are performing in the scenes are involved in the production. So there's that aspect. But there's always been women directors. You know, one of the most legendary, she passed away recently, but one of the most legendary adult content producers was a woman named Candida Royale. And she started like being very, very front-facing about producing porn and I'm a woman who's directing this and et cetera, et cetera. Um, as early as the late 70s, um, her films really started to take a hold in the early 80s. But, you know, there's always been women working in adult content production. So the question that you ask, it's, it has a really muddy response because there's all of these different threads informing it, like who the viewer is, what is on trend in terms of consumption at the time, and then what's happening behind the scenes.
0: Right, right. But I think guys also, they have this, you know, this, this idea that, you know, women don't watch it, women don't like it, you know, it's not for them. And you're saying that, I mean, it is. I mean, girls. Girls do watch it. They do consume it. They either they're doing it alone or with their partner.
1: Well, I mean, not all women.
0: Right. Obviously. Not all women.
1: But yeah, no. There's. I mean, you go for every. You know, every person who doesn't. There's probably another person who does. The thing that is interesting is to think about the the taboo nature of it and the discomfort people have about saying like, "I watch this." I like this. I'm interested in that. And this goes back to the the dawn of time of, you know, a cultural tendency to police Women's and men's sexualities, even though we're like, oh, it's 2016. Everything's equal. Everybody's, you know, on this equal page and sexual expression. That's not the way the actual, the real world actually works. We are still very, very gender and sexuality normative. We're still very, very repressive in many ways. And, and we have, you know, social norms are deeply embedded and men and women from all sexual orientations, have these very, very strong social pushes to like certain things, behave in certain ways, act in certain ways, etc. Now, the individual negotiates that, certainly, but the idea that women aren't supposed to watch porn or if they do watch porn, it has to depict sex in a a particular way. those, Those things are still very, very strong and they run very, very heavily through the culture. But we get... A lot of sort of superficial lip service that says that that's no longer the case. And, and that's unfortunate because like I was talking, you know, when we first started our conversation, everybody has a sexuality. Everybody has some form of sexual expression. How that, how that shakes out, you know, that varies by the individual. But. Given that there's all kinds of possibilities for women and men and everybody else who's watching porn. So, this idea that, you know, ladies don't watch porn or ladies aren't interested in it or whatever, that's really incomplete. The idea that women struggle perhaps with whether or not it's quote unquote okay. That is actually a more realistic capture, I'd say, about what's happening when, you
0: know, women are consuming porn. What do you mean by that exactly? Like whether or not it's okay?
1: Well, I mean, we get, like I was saying, we get these, these wider social messages that say, you know, your sex is supposed to look like this. As a woman, you're supposed to want this and not necessarily want that. This type of sex means slutty, but this type of sex means acceptable. You know, those things are still, those things still happen in spite, like I was saying, in spite of, you know, messages or, you know, I don't know, like, like trends in social justice, for example, to say that those things are not, they shouldn't happen. It's true. It shouldn't happen. But the fact remains, it still does. So when you're thinking about like, hey, I'm a guy, I have this. Tantalizing piece of erotic content, and I'm curious if my woman partner might also want to watch it. The idea that just that question, like, oh my gosh, would she even like it? Can I approach her with this question? That right there is one of those like norms or cues I'm talking about. The idea that it has to be a tentative question or that the likelihood she'll say no is higher, like that kind of stuff. Those are all messages that we're getting from wider society rather than just saying, hey, like, do you want to watch this with me? Rather than just asking a question. The fact that there's, there's an expected response is social norms shaping us and shaping our, our interaction with sexuality.
0: Right. And so, you know, I always say to guys that if you want to – and this could be in, in this situation, you know, asking uh girl you're dating, your girlfriend, your wife, if she wants to watch porn with you, or maybe it's something else. Everything is how you frame it, mm-hmm. you know. So, so it's it's basically like if you treat it like it's cool and it's normal, then they're going to be a little bit more apt to thinking kind of the same thing. But if you come in and you're like. Hey, so I got this question for you. I don't know if you're going to like it or not. I'm a little nervous to ask you. Uh, but there's this thing I really want to do. And you just go on and on and you're just like right. really nervous about it. They're going to be like, uh, and they're going to feel uncomfortable to even answer it. Yeah. You know, for sure. so it's kind of like coming in it with, uh, with confidence. Have, have you done any kind of studies or any research into couples watching porn together and, and talk no. to any couples about that?
1: I honestly, when I was doing like formal, formal research, I was not, you know, when I was looking at the questions, the the place where the the huge black hole lacking of information was, was within the community. So I actually did not do any consumer reception, you know, formal research at all. Um, No. So you, I don't know.
0: You were more behind the cameras instead of Yes, them. it
1: definitely was more like what's happening? How is this impacting the wider world from the sort of inside out? But it's interesting the idea like what you were just saying about not kind of like hemming and hawing and turning the question into a thing. That is a thing that's difficult though, because the like, how do you how do you go, hey, like here's this selection of six websites or and I'm arbitrarily picking six websites or six movies or or whatever how we're so mis- misinformed about what porn is and what the possibilities are that somebody going and being like here's some porn pick one you know what what do you like it's like trying to go to a restaurant that you know the the menu not in a language you speak and you have no idea like what the food is and you're like well how do i not act awkward in this situation so that idea you know like that it would not be uncomfortable to broach the subject is a challenging one in of itself because porn is totally interesting but it's also pretty mysterious for your average person so I just kind of wanted to add to your advice like, you know, oh, making the question not a weird question by perhaps suggesting, hey, I'm interested in this, but maybe we can kind of explore it and learn about it a little bit together. So, you know, go to a website that's not a tube site and like look around and look at the titles and see which ones seem interesting or, you know, look at the performers and see which ones seem hot. I have no idea. But in in trying to kind of make the question not awkward acknowledging that it might be inherently awkward because porn is actually quite unfamiliar um might actually help people to figure it out and and find a way to broach the subject
0: right no and that's uh that's great advice as well and you know that gets me thinking too because i've had experiences in the past with girlfriends in terms of of watching porn or or i should say more like that kind of introductory part of like, Hey, let's check this out together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've done a little bit of research on my own in terms of like, Oh, what do women like to watch? Or I've asked around and it got me thinking. And I want to talk to you about this is like, you, um, as a guy, you know, we're very visual. And so that's kind of a big thing for us in terms of being turned on. And of course, women are visual too. Um, but. It seems like because we're more visual versus maybe a woman being more engaged in uh, the story, so to speak, something like Fifty Shades of Grey or any other kind of literotica, you know that porn. I know there's stuff out there that that does have stories, but not that I found really that has you know deep engaging stories. But it seems like in that way, porn is a little bit more, uh, how should I say, easily digestible for guys than it is for for girls, unless again. I haven't done much research on it, so I want to get your thoughts on that.
1: Like, is there porn that's obviously visual because it's porn, but that also has like engaging stories to yeah. sort of bridge the gap? Yes, I there's guess, plenty. Yeah. <laughs> there's so much. There's so much
0: like that, and also the that that whole idea. Like, what do you think about that in terms of of you know what women like and what they're interested in? Is that true? I mean, are, are those statements sort of true? Am I am I well, a little bit off or
1: I think, I think what you're saying is, is one of those things that's kind of quote unquote commonly understood. Um, so it, it is true to a degree, but like all of those truisms, it's only true to a degree. You know, everybody is sort of visual if, you know, they have vision. Everybody is sort of sexual however they want to express it, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's some variability, but you do see, you know, one thing I've noticed recently, you know, cause we were talking about the gifts before, gifs <laughs> one thing um I've noticed with a lot of young women is and that's how I started to get interested in this as I was doing this interview and the like show producer on the back end I was talking to the host and you know I was saying oh this and that whatever and he proceeds to call his show producer who's like a 22 year old young woman and say is this is what she's saying like you're a lady like do you agree and this woman jumped in the conversation, was like, "Yes, this, 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 and this," and and she was talking about gifs. And so I started investigating it a bit more. And one thing that's really interesting that you see is a lot of younger women today are consuming their porn via gif, and it's just that little two second, three second, like hot little angle, and that works, and that's highly visual. And actually far shorter, you know, people talk about guys need, you know, however brief amount of time, crass joke, ha 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 type of thing. That gift content is is far shorter. And so it's it's interesting to think about the consumption pattern because you definitely, I'm noticing and you can definitely see a lot of women consuming porn in that way. But it's also kind of counterintuitive because it's briefer, it's also visual, et cetera, et cetera. So when you're thinking about like gendering consumption trends, it works sort of, but I think ultimately in the end, those are just kind of guideposts to give people a place to start. And then you figure it out from there because you might think, oh, you know, my chick enjoyed Fifty Shades of Grey, so we're going to go watch a Fifty Shades of Grey porn parody. And that might be a crappy movie. But then you go and you find a BDSM-themed film that, you know, many of them exist. um, And then you watch that, and that's amazing. And then you go from there, and you find something else. And then all of a sudden you realize that maybe your partner really likes – like hardcore BDSM that's way more hardcore than maybe what you like. But the point being is that you never know where you're going to go when you start going down that rabbit hole. So these ideas about women like this or how people consume their porn, I don't think that those should be hard and fast rules for people, but maybe just an entryway, you know, maybe a good segue to try and find the next question or the next thing and, and to sort of choose your own adventure, if you will.
0: Right and it all should be a process of discovery in some way cuz you know as 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 you and I both know you know sexuality is a spectrum so you know like you said in the beginning of of our conversation you know there's there's so many different forms of sexuality and it's not uh black and white and so people are into different things or not into some things and that's something for you to discover with your partner or discover on your own whatever it is and, mm-hmm. and kind of go from there. For sure. Right, absolutely. Cool. So, tell us some more stuff. I want to hear more about some things that you can kind of highlight from your book exposure, uh some really interesting factoids or things, other things that you found, you've already shared a few, uh from your kind of research and 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 journey into this industry.
1: Well, it's interesting cuz exposure is like I think about my work as, you know, a big puzzle or a big pie or whatever, however, whatever metaphor you want to use, that's a bunch of pieces filling out a hole. And, you know, exposure really added a new piece to what I was doing, you know, the the complete process of my work, etc. So, you know, exposure is not like a research book at all. I have, you know, The whole wide selection, I can forward you a bibliography of of research where people can get like, here's a fact, here's a figure, things like that. And, you know, all of that's academic and and whatever. And then I have this whole other side that is a very like plain language, accessible, um, you know, pop culture-y publication. Like I was talking before, like men's health kind of, these are the most interesting sex toys type of work. But what exposure fills out is, this piece in the middle or this amalgamized piece that's more about me and what I saw and why I did what I did and why I do what I do and what's interesting about it and that I think is really compelling because a lot of people have gone to exposure thinking it's a research book or thinking it's going to give them secrets or scandal or stuff like that. And it's absolutely not like that at all. It's a hundred percent like what I see and what I notice and what's interesting. And there's so much of it. Um, there's times on set where, you know, I'm on a set (laughs) visiting for whatever reason (laughs) and, um, what that's like. And I obviously, you know, I'm not a porn performer. I'm not a porn director, um, I can't talk about what it's like for those other roles. So what you see in exposure is what it's like to be on a porn set as me, as a person who's not involved but sees and understands. So really, porn sets are kind of boring, <laughs> truth be told. Um, there's a story in exposure about how I dozed off actually one time on a porn set because I was hungry and it was hot. And everybody had to be quiet because they were filming. So just things like that, little, um just almost little anecdotes that just peel back a, a page or peel back a misconception, you know, over the past decade, which is, is basically what, you know, I did. And it's interesting because it was a whole process, you know, I didn't. I didn't step onto my first porn set or go to my first porn convention all calm and and knowing everything that was going on. You know, I had a learning curve as well. And and exposure covers that as well. Um, You know, basically my process from totally being wide-eyed and uninitiated to actually being able to see what's going on because, you know, I learned what was going on. And I think that's really important, you know, sort of one of the more secret messages of exposure is that like everybody has to learn about a community or a thing or a population or whatever it is. Nobody just has the information and that process is like really important for people to be aware of. You know, I didn't just start like watching porn, critiquing porn, going to porn sets, any of that. And, and that, that, Discomfort is important to be aware of because anybody who tells you that they just jump in and and everything works is lying. I think.
0: And also, I mean, just through the you through the filter of of being a woman, you know, that's got to be a whole other thing. I mean, if you you wrote exposure versus a guy, let's just say doing the exact same uh, things that you did, visiting the sets and things like that, might have had a different. Uh, I guess a different experience just because he's a male. What do you think about that?
1: I, you know, I think as much as I would like to say, oh, I was just a fly on a wall, you know, I was completely unobtrusive. Who I was didn't matter, you know, had I been a guy, had I been a bit older, a bit younger, whatever, it wouldn't have mattered. I would love that to be true. But I know that that is not true, that it absolutely – I would have seen different things. I would have made different conclusions. I would have been treated differently. You know, I worked as an intern in a porn production company. And it's like 2007, 2008. And I was inside a production company. Now, for the most part, it was office work, boring, (laughs) like the most like mundane, you know, you work in an office. But I also went to set, went to conventions, picked up drove around people you know called people on the phone wrote press releases etc and a a you know a woman porn performer getting picked up and taken to set by Smiley 28 year old at the time me probably would have been different if it was Smiley 28 year old you for example we we react and we respond very differently to different people and and gender is significant And it's also, and I don't quite understand this, um, but there's an inherent vulnerability, especially to women who, you know, women sex workers, but women who work as porn performers, you know, it's, it's very intense work. You know, you're naked, you're having sex, all of these things. I don't understand it in terms of, I've never had that experience, but I feel that there's something happening there. And especially, you know, this is 10 years ago now, you know, our culture has changed dramatically in the past decade. And I definitely think that my work would have been different. The responses would have been different. Um, people who are sharing, you know, their their work experience, their life experiences, etc. You know, part of why they were sharing that information with me was because I was me and had I been a guy, it would have been different. Um, like I said, I wish that wasn't the case, but to say that it's not the case is to misrepresent. Um, again, I don't understand, you know, th- these are psychological questions that are outside of my milieu of expertise, but. I know that they're there. You can inherently feel them. And, and that's really interesting to me. I think that's part of why I wanted to write exposure as well. Because, you know, people would ask me all the time, why are you doing this? (laughs) Like, why do you care? Like, what, what is the point? And, you know, there's things that are, embedded in my biography and my upbringing and, you know, being from Los Angeles and and all of this stuff that make this community, you know, inherently compelling to me. And that stuff is important. And it's important to acknowledge that that's what my work is built on.
0: Right. No, exactly. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, and and it goes even further beyond gender. I mean, you could also have been another woman at another age, you know, with a, yes. with a whole different background and, and seen it in a different way. But that's yeah, that's kind of just how everything is. It's it's you yeah. know, it's going no, through your lens. Even,
1: yeah, even I mean, I went, I went. My undergrad education was at UCLA, and then I, before I started working on my PhD, I did a small terminal master's at Cal State Northridge, which is, you know, in the San Fernando Valley. So not only, like, LA is a vast, it's a huge, huge, huge city, you know, so not only am I from the city, but I had spent a lot of time in the San Fernando Valley. So just that, you know, just, you know, having somebody be able to be like, oh, yeah, go over to Chatsworth and do this, that, you know, and and to be able to respond to you know, even the geography of the city in a, in a seamless way helped my work. It it did. And it, it wouldn't, it would not be, it would not have been the same had it been less seamless. So it's very, you're right, you know, on every level, it's very important to acknowledge. And, you know, like I said, I think that's part of the reason, I know that's part of the reason why I wanted to write exposure the way I did it. You know, I, I definitely could have done, you know, like a a book that was a a whole bunch of interviews, or a whole bunch of, you know, study statistics, sure. But I think that that, you know, exposure added a piece to that puzzle um, and, and just added, you know, a whole other dimension to this overall arc.
0: Right. And so what's the work that you're currently doing now is are you going to write another book about the industry? Are you kind of done with writing for now? What's your, what's your next kind of moves? (laughs)
1: That book just came out and you're already asking me about the next You
0: know, it's like, there's (laughs) a Give me
1: a break, man. I I
0: guarantee you you Quentin Tarantino who just came out of the hateful eight is already halfway through the script of his next film. You know what I mean?
1: That Quentin Tarantino, if I measured my daily output and production against him, I would fail. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you know, I I think about there there's so much that I didn't, you know, like different aspects. Like I didn't cover a lot of cam and exposure. I did wrote nothing about gift porn and exposure. Like there's so much more. You know, I wrote about exposure, I wrote about awards, about, you know, really about the state of the industry you know, a couple years back and what's happening. And so many things have happened since then. So, you know, is there going to be a second book? Is there material for a second book? 120%. Um, It's one of those things. It's just a matter of prioritizing the project. And, you know, if there's interest as well, like it's, 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 I struggle with, you know, how much of other people's stories am I even qualified to tell? I know that I am, you know, I know that I know what I'm talking about, but I also am like, you know, maybe maybe it's not my place to write about the state of the cam industry. Maybe somebody from the cam industry should. And it's it's this inherent, I think it's a question that every sociologist probably wrestles with to some capacity in the sense that you start to learn so much about, other people's lives that you wonder like, am I doing the story justice? So, you know, is there more to talk about? Will I talk about it? Yes. Um, Do I have another publication date for my second book yet? No, sorry. I can't keep up with Clinton in that respect.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Got it. Got it. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, This has been just a great interview. I feel like we've kind of barely scratched the surface here. So hopefully we can have you on even again and talk just about more you know i i feel like you you write a lot of of cool stuff also in other publications you said you write for playboy and men's health and maybe there's some stuff in there that we can eventually talk about as well but yeah. uh if if you're still listening you're still uh you know got this far in the podcast i want you to go check out exposure you can get it easily on amazon.com is it in bookstores as well
1: yeah it should be there at your uh, local barnes and noble
0: yeah, but who goes there anymore? So anyway, go to Amazon.com. Exactly. No, it's, it's right there uh, on Amazon. <laughs> yes, exactly. And check out Exposure by Dr. Chantel Tibbles, and I'll put that link in the episode show notes. Chantel, thanks again for coming on. Any uh any last words or anything that you'd like to say to wrap up?
1: Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And like anything in life, it's all a learning process. Approach it with open eyes and don't watch stolen, pirated free porn.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and write a review. Over 18 and want a question answered on the podcast? Email all your questions to trip at tripadvice.com.